want to add my welcome to that of Dave's earlier. My name's Owen, and if we haven't met before, uh, I just want to say a massive welcome to Foundation Church today. I hope that you enjoy your time with us and that it proves uh, beneficial to you, that you go away feeling blessed and encouraged in some way as a result of your time with us this afternoon. Um, we are going to continue now a series that we've been in for kind of all together almost a year and a half on and off, uh, working our way through Luke's gospel. We've been kind of going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line through the gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves today in Luke chapter 22. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love to invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 22. The words will come up on the screen so you can follow along there, but I, I would always encourage you to, to check it out for yourself. Open the Bible, read what it says there. Don't take my word for it that what I've stuck on the screen is what it says in Scripture, but read for yourself. Uh, now, we're going to approach this slightly differently to the way we normally would. So having just said we've gone verse by verse, line by line, we very often literally will do that. Uh, today, we're not actually going to read and work through every single verse of Luke chapter 22, but I really would encourage you to read the chapter uh, at some other time. But instead, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to kind of capture one big theme that is there through Luke chapter 22, and then we're going to zero in on one interaction that Jesus had with one of his disciples, a man named Simon Peter. And we've seen as we've gone through Luke's gospel, this series we've called On the Road with Jesus, that as Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem, journeyed to the cross, journeyed to accomplish that which he came to do, he, he met people along the way. And Luke's gospel is littered with these accounts of Jesus engaging with people and speaking life and hope to them, engaging them and calling them out of darkness and into light, calling them into the kingdom of God. And that mission continues. Well, actually, that mission continues today through the church, but that mission continues right up to the point that he goes to the cross. And we are now just a few hours away from Jesus' being arrested and tried and then taken to the cross when we jump into chapter 22. And we've got to get the context before we dig too deep into these verses so we need to remember what's about to happen when we read what we're going to read today. Okay? Jesus is about to be arrested and tried for crimes he hasn't committed and then crucified, though he's done absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever. And what's more, he knows that's what's going to happen to him. And what's more, we read in John's Gospel, he says... Openly, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I give it willingly. See, Jesus came, lived without fault, lived without sin, lived completely blamelessly before God and before men. And then went to the cross and took upon himself the punishment that, that all of humanity deserved, that each one of us has earned for ourselves in our rebellion against God, in our, what the Bible calls sin. And with the cross in full view, knowing exactly what's going to happen, that's the context that we read in. And the, the, the kind of big theme that I want us to see in this chapter, 
actually is that of God's sovereignty, that of the fact that God oversaw and orchestrated these events. Jesus is about to go to the cross. That isn't an accident. He's about to be tried and crucified. That isn't a mistake. It's not just the act of people who hate him and want to see him dead. Actually, it's the sovereignty of God. And so I want us to quickly look through this chapter and see where that gets pointed out to us. Luke's very careful to make sure we don't miss that. That we're in no doubt as to the fact that this is God's plan being worked out. This is God's good plan being worked out. And so the first place we get to see that is in verses 1 and 7, and that's about timing. Do we read in verses 1 and 7 that this is at the time of the feast of the unleavened bread, or Passover? We read in verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Or in verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Why is that significant? Why the day that Jesus is going to be arrested and tried and crucified, is it important or significant that it's the Passover? The Passover is a, a Jewish festival of remembrance that came from their time in slavery in Egypt and commemorated for them how God brought them freedom from slavery, freedom from the oppression of the Egyptians. And that came about by God saying to his people that the last and final plague that he was going to send on the Egyptians would be the death of the firstborn. Not insignificant that it's the death of the firstborn. But that if the Israelites were to take a lamb without blemish and to kill that lamb and put the blood of that lamb on their door, that the angel of death would pass over them and that they would remain unharmed. And they would then be released from slavery as Pharaoh eventually said, enough is enough. Go. Moses, after time and time again, going to him saying, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh going, not a chance of it. Eventually, this lamb whose blood was shed instead of the blood of the people of God meant that they were able to go free. And for generation after generation after generation, the Jewish people had remembered that God brought them freedom from slavery. He brought them freedom, that they were saved, that they didn't die because the blood of the Lamb covered that Passover festival that they celebrated, that that Jesus and his disciples were about to sit down and celebrate together was always pointing forward to this moment. It was a picture. It was a picture of what Jesus was going to do for his people. That just as the blood of that lamb meant those people could go free. Free from slavery. Free to enter into the promised land. So too the blood of Jesus would mean that you and I could go free. Free from slavery to sin. Free to step into the true promised land of eternity with God. 
You see God's hand orchestrating this. This timing is not coincidental. We find again in Isaiah chapter 53, pictured the, the suffering servant, this prophecy that was, again, foretelling that Jesus would come and sacrifice himself on behalf of his people. He's pictured as being like a lamb led to the slaughter, bearing on himself the sins of the world. It picks up on this Passover imagery. Then again, in John's Gospel, we read John chapter 1, verse 29, as Jesus comes to the water to be baptized by John. John the Baptist sees him coming, and what does he say? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 15 to 20, Jesus takes the Passover and applies it to himself. In the hearing of his disciples, we read from verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus took these symbols and applied them to himself and what he was going to do. He said, this Passover was always about me. This isn't an accident. This is God's plan. This is his perfect timing. He took the Passover meal and clarified its real meaning before their very eyes. It's almost like taking a balloon. Like you've seen those kind of foil balloons with fancy shapes. And you kind of look at it 2D and you're even kind of slightly crumpled up. And you kind of see what it's supposed to be. But then as it's inflated with helium, all of a sudden you see what it was really supposed to be all along and what it's supposed to look like. That's what Jesus does with this Passover feast as he takes it. And it's why we now celebrate communion. As he takes it and says to his disciples, this is about me. This is about what I'm going to do. And it's like he inflates it with meaning. And so we see what it was always about. God's sovereignty and tying together this Jewish feast and the crucifixion of Jesus is stunning. We see, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, God's plan had been being outworked amongst his people. Not a tragic accident or the result of the anger of disgruntled people. This was a deliberate act of a holy God to rescue his people. The long-awaited and longed-for promise fulfilled in a deeper and better way than people had ever expected. We get another great view of the sovereignty of God in in verses 9 to 13, actually, as Jesus sends his disciples to prepare for the Passover feast. We read from verse 9, they said to him, where would you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. 
And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And again, in verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he proceeds to quote that passage from Isaiah 53 about the lamb. He says these words. He says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is clear that what was prophesied long ago about the coming Messiah will come to pass and is coming to pass, is being fulfilled there and then in him. That he would be tried and arrested as a criminal, numbered among the transgressors. If God has spoken it, it will happen. God's word cannot be changed. What he has spoken will always come to pass. And Luke doesn't want us to miss it. He wants us to see in this chapter so clearly the sovereign hand of God. His word is reliable, trustworthy, and true. And then finally, we see Jesus recognizing and submitting to the will of the Father. And we read in verse 42, he's in the garden in full view of what's about to come, in full view of what's about to happen, knowing the agony that awaits him at the cross and the separation that he would experience from his heavenly Father for the first time in all eternity as our sins were placed on him and the Father would turn his face away and no longer look at his son as he bore our sins on himself. We read this, he prays, he cries out in the garden, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knows that this is the plan. And he embraces the will of the Father. When he prays, this isn't like a quesera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Like, you know, oh, like, this is what I really want, but Lord, you know, not my will, but yours be done. Kind of, oh, let go and let God. That's not what Jesus is praying. This is a faith-filled trusting in the perfect plans of a holy God. Understanding the sovereignty of God in in what's going on here is essential for us. We mustn't miss it. And actually, as we zoom in now on this one interaction that Jesus has with Simon Peter for the rest of our time together, we've got to keep the sovereignty of God in focus. We've got to keep that in our minds. Because otherwise, we struggle to fully understand and appreciate what's going on. And so we're going to read together verse 31 through 34, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it and seeing how this applies to us today. So we read from verse 31. This is Jesus speaking to his friend. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, that's Simon. So his name was Simon Peter. Okay. So Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Remember, the sovereignty of God is in full view in this passage. Now, when Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, we've got to see as well that the you there is plural. We don't get like a, a plural you. It's like a yarl. If we were American, you could have a yarl. <laughs> but we're not. So it's... <laughs> is a plural you, which the English language doesn't permit us to have without saying y'all. <laughs> okay, Jesus isn't just saying that Simon Peter will be sifted. Actually, he's saying that the devil has demanded to sift you, my disciples, my people, my followers. Remember the sovereignty of God. He says, Satan has demanded to sift you. The devil has power, but he is not all-powerful. He is not in control. God is sovereign. Luke has made that abundantly clear to us, as does the rest of Scripture. Satan can't just do it. He, he doesn't just kind of get to run around doing whatever he pleases. That's not the picture we see in Scripture. He has to have that permitted by one who is higher, one who has all authority, the one who is sovereign. He requests to sift the disciples and God permits this sifting. Okay? God's in, in control. If God says no, it's not happening. But he permits this sifting. Now we get a behind the scenes at what this might look like, perhaps, I guess, in Job chapter 1 in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with that story or if not, see, Satan comes to God and, and highlights, well, actually, he, God says, where have you been? And Satan says, oh, you know, roaming back and forth. And God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? And, and Satan's response is to say, Job is only a, a righteous man. Job only loves you and only worships you and only follows you because you've given him loads of good things, God. Like he's got a nice wife and lots of children and land and property. And like he is only worshipping you, God, because you've given him the good stuff. Let me strip all that away from him and you'll see he won't worship you anymore. And God permits it. Just like he permits the sifting with Simon Peter and the rest of the disciples, he permits Satan to test Job in this way. But he says, that's fine, but you must not touch him. Don't lay a finger on him. You're not allowed to do that. And so Satan strips everything away overnight. Complete tragedy. His children are gone. His crops are gone. Everything he has is 
just evaporates in a moment overnight, apart from his health and his marriage. And it doesn't work. Job doesn't stop worshipping God. He wasn't just in it for the good stuff. He saw the goodness of God for who God was, and he continues to worship God. And so Satan, probably somewhat disgruntled, goes back to God and says, ah, he's only still worshipping you. He's only still following you because he's got his health. You let me strike him down and take his health away from him. Then you'll see. Like, yeah, he only loves you because you're doing good stuff for him still. And God permits him to do it. And again, it fails. In spite of ill health and afflictions, Job continues to trust and worship God. Satan tests Job's faith. He tries to take him away from God. But Job's faith is proved to be genuine. He doesn't just love God for the the good things God could add to him. He loves him for him, for who he is. He sees him as the true Lord of lords, the King of kings, the one to be worshipped and adored and revered. The one who we've sung about this afternoon. And Satan has asked to test the disciples in that same way. And I want to say this afternoon, if you're a Christian, this might be a surprise to you, but actually, that includes you. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, then Satan wants to sift you. He wants your faith to fail. He wants you to fall into sin and ultimately to lose heart and to stop trusting God and to give up. It's the pattern with Job and it's the pattern that we see going on with Peter and the same is going on for us today. Peter learned from his experience. We're going to read more about his experience in a minute, but he learned about it, and we find him writing to brothers and sisters in the early church some 30 years after this event. In a letter he wrote, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 9, he wrote, having gone through this experience to Christians just like you and I, he wrote these words, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This, having experienced it firsthand, he says, the devil hates you and he is out for you. He's going to do anything he can to take you out to stop you from trusting in God, to stop you from hoping in Christ, to derail your faith. And he'll do it in a myriad of ways. Maybe you've experienced some of this. The hardships or loss, the kind of thing that Job experienced, suffering, sickness, the temptation to sin, the deceitful promise of fulfillment outside of Christ. Like this thing, (laughs) you don't really need Jesus to fulfill you. Like if you had that, 
then you'd be satisfied. That's where you'd really be satisfied. If you had that relationship with them, then you'd be really fulfilled. It's lies. So the testing for Peter was real. And the testing we face as Christians is real. I've heard Christians a number of times ask this kind of hypothetical question, like, if the devil was going to try and take you out, how would he do it? (laughs) And we kind of like distance it out there as though it's this kind of like hypothetical, like, well, you know, like for me, I guess maybe it might be. (laughs) And like what's really going on in that moment is you know what that battle with sin is in your own life and your own heart, but you're too proud to admit it, so you make it abstract, like, well, hypothetically, if he were going to take me out or try to, I guess it might maybe be through dot, dot, dot. Or you name that one thing that you just know is an idol in your life, like you're clinging on to it with all your might, like I could not bear to lose that thing, because then my identity would be gone, my hope would be lost, I don't know what I would do without that. You're placing that in the position that only Christ should have in your heart. You'll do it in a myriad of ways. And it isn't hypothetical. We need to be alert, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5. Be alert, be sober-minded, resist him. So I want to ask you to be honest with yourself. Not a hypothetical if, how? How is the devil trying to take you out? How are you tempted to depart from the faith? The Christian life isn't like a fight. It is a fight. We need to be alert. And we need to resist. But there's remarkably good news for us in this passage, in the way Jesus speaks to Peter as we do that. See, because you could hear it and you're like, oh, crumbs, like... This sounds really difficult. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? What if I don't manage? What if I mess up? What if I don't get it right? Remember the context as Jesus says these words to Peter. You're going to be sifted, Peter. What does he say? What's the context? A, God's sovereign, God's in control. And B, Jesus is just about to go to the cross to pay the price for our sins. And even in this discussion, Jesus tells Peter that he knows that Peter's going to sin. He's like, the devil's going to test you, and actually, (laughs) you're going to deny me. And Peter denies it, like he thinks he's standing firm. He he says to Jesus, doesn't he? He says, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. It's like, I will never fail you, Jesus. I will, I will never do that thing. But Jesus knows. like He knows exactly what Peter's going to do. He knows that Peter's going to deny he ever even knew him. 
He knows that he's going to be so gripped with fear of man in that moment that he's going to deny ever knowing his Lord and Savior. And knowing that, what does Jesus say to Simon Peter? Knowing that's what's going to happen, what does he say to him? He says, I've prayed for you. He knows exactly what he's going to do, and he says, Simon Peter, I have prayed for you. What incredible words of comfort. And the same is true for you today. We don't just get that from this passage, but from Hebrews 7, 25, and from Romans 8, 34, we find this great proclamation that Jesus Christ is interceding for you, or making prayers for you at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In this moment, Jesus is praying for you. Like If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will this afternoon. But what has Jesus prayed for you? What had he prayed for Peter? What is he praying for you this afternoon? Well, first, we've got to notice what he doesn't pray. See, Jesus doesn't pray that the testing won't come. He doesn't pray that the testing won't come. Instead, he prays that your faith might not fail. He prays that you will endure. He prays that Peter will endure, that he won't abandon the faith just as Job hadn't abandoned God, that Peter wouldn't abandon the faith and that neither will you. The trials and testing will come. Okay? Like maybe you've had the most amazing, perfect, easy life to this point as a Christian. Maybe from the day that you put your trust in Jesus to now it's been sunshine, rainbows and lollipops and you're just like, oh, and I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean trials will come? It's easy. But I doubt it. And if they haven't yet, they will. In fact, they're an integral part of our growth as Christians. That might sound counterintuitive to you, but I think it's thoroughly scriptural. They teach us to depend on God instead of other things. How? Well, often they expose where we're looking to someone or something else to secure us instead of Christ. And then those things in the kindness and the mercy of God get shaken away from us. We realize that our true hope, our firm foundation is Him, not in those things. God allows this to take place. This testing in God's providence is part of our sanctification. It's part of our becoming more like Christ. That's not a very popular thing to teach, but I do believe it's thoroughly biblical. When everything else is stripped away from us, it helps us to see more clearly that Christ is our true hope. Suffering and hardships have a way of exposing what we're really trusting in. And when we go through it, it allows us to confront those things, to see them for what they are. It's hollow, frail, fleeting, insubstantial. They're not able to bear the weight of our hope. We need something more solid, something more enduring. We need Christ. Having prayed that his faith will not fail, Jesus tells Peter, that there will be purpose and meaning from this experience too. We read on in verse 32, he says, when you have turned again, in other words, after the testing has occurred, 
When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, we know from the rest of Scripture that Peter did that. (laughs) We know even from the verses we just read from 1 Peter 5 that he did that. As Peter experiences the grace of God in forgiveness, see, how did Peter turn again? Does anyone know how the story goes if you don't know it? We read, after the resurrection, Jesus comes and he meets with Simon Peter on a beach. And he restores him. He lets him know that he's loved, he's forgiven, that his sins aren't counted against him, that God has plans and purposes for him, that he's going to use him. As Peter experiences the grace of God in forgiving his failure, as he experiences the certainty of knowing that Jesus is praying for him and sustaining him, even as he goes through that trial, he can take that experience and use it to strengthen his brothers. And the same is true for you. None of this occurs in isolation. Your Christian life does not exist in a vacuum. We're supposed to encourage and strengthen one another with our experiences of the grace of God and our knowledge of the fact that Christ is praying for us and sustaining us, even in our hardest times, that he's there as our firm foundation and our certain hope. Peter isn't going to strengthen his brother's by his power and incredible performance. Like, Peter isn't going to strengthen his brothers by his success story. It's worth us knowing that. He isn't going to inspire and wow them by being a faultless and inspirational leader. That isn't how this works. He fails dramatically. But he doesn't lose his faith. He continues to look to God he finds mercy and forgiveness in the person of Christ. And having experienced that, he's able to strengthen his brothers in their weakness. Peter doesn't avoid trial and neither will you. And he doesn't strengthen his brothers either then by saying, Jesus prayed for me and so my life was easy. And he doesn't do that either. He's able to strengthen them through his testimony. I've found forgiveness, and so can you. I've found God to be faithful, even through the trial, even through the hardest, darkest, most painful experience. I've found him to be faithful. and He's faithful to you too. You can trust him. That's how Peter strengthens his brothers, as it's how we're supposed to strengthen one another. See, it's scant comfort or encouragement to say, my life is easy and I've never made a mistake. (laughs) Okay? I mean, A, if you say it, you're a liar, and B, you're not helping anyone. Because they just think, well, mine isn't, and I'm not. And so they go away feeling condemned. How much more helpful to be honest about our experience of the kindness of God 
and to say in my darkest moments, Christ has been there sustaining me. In my most absolute failure, he's been there to offer forgiveness and restoration. The circumstances that led to Jenny and I moving to Wokingham were far from pain-free or easy. There were lots and lots of tears involved when we moved here. We actually had to spend quite a lot of time seeing a counsellor and have trusted friends pray through things with us. In many ways, we felt like we'd lost everything. And just like Peter bent under peer pressure that night and fear of man by the fire as he denied Jesus, I failed to keep my emotions in check in that process. I failed to glorify God in my words and actions at times in that process. But I do know this. And I knew it throughout. And it's something we talked about lots as a couple. That even when it felt like everything was lost, we knew that Jesus was interceding for us. That he was sustaining us comforting us, securing us in the fact that we had an eternal and unshakable hope in him. And in his kindness, we didn't lose hope. We didn't lose faith. He prayed that our faith would endure, I believe. It's that which in many ways sustained us. And in his wisdom, he's used that process. He used that process to cause me to lean more fully on him to depend on him. Pride and self-reliance was stripped away. I would say before that experience that I was quite a self-reliant leader in many ways. God used that to shape me, to cause me to rely on him. And actually I know since that it's affected the way we lead. It's affected the way I lead. It's changed me. James has known me for a long time, about 17 years or more. He can testify that God's used the experience of those years to change me. I've grown in my faith. I've been better equipped to strengthen my brothers. And so in a strange way, I'm grateful for that experience. I'm grateful for that trial. A man called Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's a preacher some hundred years ago in London, wrote about this a kind of experience like this. He said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me on the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me on the rock of ages. That quote actually encouraged me and Jenny greatly. And has done over the years. If you've been in our kitchen, which lots of you have, you'll see a poster that says, Kiss the Wave. It's a reminder to me that actually in his kindness, God will use difficult things to cause me to lean on him. What Spurgeon was summarizing with that, I've learned to kiss the wave. I've learned to be grateful for tumultuous experiences and trial and challenge that 
throws me on the rock of ages, that causes me to to lean on God, to depend on him, that shows me that he is my sure and certain hope in times of trouble, that those other things which I'm tempted to lean on or to rest on or to secure myself in fail and don't endure, but he and he alone does. God allows testing and sifting and buffeting to come and will use it for our growth. And throughout it, he prays for us that our faith will remain steadfast. So take heart. Take heart this afternoon. In your weakness and even in your failure, Peter was about to fail in the most incredible way and Jesus knew it in your weakness and even in your failure, knowing your weakness and knowing your failures. Jesus is praying for you. The creator and sustainer of all things is praying for you, bearing you up, sustaining you. A man called Murray McShane said this about these verses. He said, if I could hear Christ interceding for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If I could hear Christ interceding for me, crying out for me, praying that my faith would endure in the room next door, if I could overhear those prayers, oh, how it would strengthen me, yeah? But Murray McShane points out the truth. The distance makes no difference. He is praying for you. We know the end of the story for Peter. We've just talked about it. Jesus restores him. There's hope there for us. Brothers, sisters, if you've fallen into sin, do not despair. Do not lose heart. Do not lose faith. Confess, knowing that when we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repent, turn again to him. As you turn, strengthen your brothers and hope again in him, knowing that he's praying for you. Whatever challenges you're facing, whatever hardships you might be walking through, and I don't know all of your circumstances, I don't know some of you at all. But he does. Whatever you're walking through, do not lose heart. Do not lose faith. Cast yourself on him. Cry out to him. Cry out as Christ did in the garden, your will, not mine. If this testing is necessary for my sanctification, for my refinement to cause me to lean on you, if it's necessary to stop me from trusting in those other things to stop me from hoping in idols, then, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Hope in him and know this. He is praying for you, bearing you up, sustaining you, caring for you, loving you. (laughs) He is for you. And when this race is run 
and the curtain comes down on this fleeting life, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is an eternal reward that outshines anything this world has to offer. Brothers and sisters, we have great reason for hope this afternoon. Whatever you're going through, if your hope is in Jesus, it is the most great and glorious and sustaining hope that there is. Sure and certain, not rooted in what might happen, not rooted in what you might do or say, but rooted in what has happened at the cross, in his death and resurrection as he conquered sin and conquered the grave, we have an eternal and unshakable hope. And what's more, as we follow him, he's praying for us. I want to pray for you now.